As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gregor Robertson. We're here with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining us today, it is The Times' very own Bill Edgar and Chief Football Writer Henry Winter, who is in Prague. Coming up, we're going to take a look at why Jack Ross didn't work out at Sunderland and is Trent Alexander-Arnold a wasted talent at fullback? First, though, Gareth Southgate has his boys back together and they're on the road this time. First up for the Three Lions, it's the Czech Republic on Friday before a trip to Bulgaria on Monday night. The Times chief football writer then, Henry, joins us on the line now, as I say, from the Czech Republic to take a look at the two games. We're going to start, though, with off-field matters. And a number of England's players have spoken this week about UEFA's three-step protocol at combating racism on the pitch. Is it doing enough? Well, Tammy Abraham has suggested not and implied that England will be ready to walk when they want to walk, not when they're told they can, if there were any incidents of racism on the field or from the stands. Following a team meeting, Abraham said it is a team thing. Don't isolate one person. We're a whole team. If it happens to one of us, it happens to all of us. We should point out UEFA have their clear three-step guidelines if racial abuse is detected. The first being stadium announcement calling for it to stop. Secondary, temporary suspension of the th- of the game with a further announcement. And finally, the abandonment of the match. Uh, Abraham did say if we decide we want to stop the game and we want to stop the game, no matter what the score is, if we're not happy with it as a team, we will decide whether or not to stay on the pitch. It is a team decision if we decide in the end that we don't want to play this game anymore because of what is going on. Well, there is no doubt there is recent history, particularly in Bulgaria, of racism. If this does happen, Henry, and the players do walk off, this would be some statement, some example set by England to the rest of the world. I think it's fantastic they're considering it. I mean, it's very interesting that a lot of people have been focusing on UEFA's three-step protocol, which anyone who goes to matches um, where there are where there is a racist presence. Uh, just knows it simply doesn't work because first, is the referee going to hear it? Is he then going to say, well, is it just one person? Did I really hear it? Will the match delegate uh, get involved as well? So I think the players are completely right. And Tammy Abraham was very forthright in, in his comments that they're going to ignore the three-step uh, protocol. And if they do hear something, as happened in, uh, in Montenegro, then, then they're going to walk off because, look, these are professionals. And, you know, they're, they're representing their country. No one in any workplace 
should uh, sh- should have to sort of work under those circumstances. So the fact that UEFA are hopeless on these things, uh, we've seen the fines, we've seen the sort of the, the, the small you know stadium bans, you know almost closing a row and, and, and putting a banner on it and a hashtag. You're not going to fight racists with hashtags. But what you have to do is absolutely shame them, shame the hosts, shame the national association, shame the governing bodies, and that involves the players, the ones who are bearing the brunt of it, just saying no, enough is enough. We cannot play sport in you know unsporting in human conditions and we're going to walk off so what tammy abraham said was was very interesting and when i was with him about sort of five or six of us were speaking to him and i went back to tammy and i said listen do you really mean this do you mean that you will walk off before the three-step protocol kicks in and he said yeah you know I, and he's quite right enough is enough because this has been going on for well 20 30 40 years and everyone said oh it's you know it's gone underground it's it's calmed down uh, things are much better, but clearly it hasn't. It's spilling over into social media, and it's still spilling over in monkey chants and matches. And when the players walk off, I said to them, I said, listen, every, every journalist in this room will back you. I'm sure the Football Association will back you. Your wafer will get in a half, but something's got to be done. I, I think it's completely right. It is interesting when you look at the UEFA protocols because they're putting the onus a lot on the referee, and a referee will have to be very brave, Bill, to halt a game. Yeah, well, as um, Henry said, would the referee hear? I mean, the, the referees, it's not as if that's his only responsibility, running around listening out for racist chants. He's concentrating extremely hard on, on a match, you know, which you have to do as a referee. Um, but, but yeah, um, I think uh, the the three-step protocol, I mean, it, it's, it hasn't led to uh, any matches being abandoned, but UEFA has acknowledged there have been racist chants because they've... Uh, closed stadiums partially you know subsequently for for subsequent games so they 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 know it's happened they've acknowledged it's happened but uh just at the uh at the time it's not you know they haven't during the game they haven't uh put this three-step uh you know gone through the three steps and mm. abandoned the game um and and i think yeah it uh it would have a, a huge effect i mean if england were to walk off it would have enormous uh send enormous shockwaves through uh the sporting world it's the worst the world's most popular sport england one of the most famous teams right around the world if you had an england team had walked off in a uh competitive match because of racism and it would have a, a massive impact and uh and i think it would sort of get really uh, draw something out of UEFA they couldn't just ignore it yeah as we say it would be a huge statement if England were to do it Gregor I know in the past earlier on this year Raheem Sterling was asked about this the same scenario and he actually said walking off the pitch wouldn't be the right thing to do as that would let the racists win slightly conflicted to what Tammy Abraham has said and that they've all agreed that that's what they'll do perhaps Sterling has changed his mind but can you understand that thought process as well from Sterling yeah I mean look first of all it's very hard to to understand yeah, it at all because I'm, 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 I'm white and I can't, it's not, I'm not someone who's ever been on the receiving end of this. Um, but I would also have loved to have been a kind of fly in the wall in, in the team meetings that have been going on this week because it's obvious that Gareth Southgate is, is intent on confronting this issue. He kind of must have felt, I think he's felt helpless mm. in the past when this has happened to his players. And he's, te- you know, this, he, he mentioned this first in the, the previous tran- uh the previous international break um, and you know almost threw this forward to give several weeks sort of run up and this is this is an issue that's overshadowed the game entirely now um, and that, that that's admirable but admirable that he wants to tackle it like this but I think it is it has kind of raised the the issue above 
the game itself and um, it's, it's probably put a bit of pressure on the players. I mean, I, like I say, I would have liked to have seen, liked to have known what happened in that room because not everyone will be unanimous about it and obviously they've had, they've had a team meeting and they've come to an agreement and that's why the players have, have, have made public their intention to walk off the game. But as we've said, Raheem Sterling, some people have said, I spoke to Viv Solomon Ottobor, a guy who's playing in Bulgaria for CSK Sofia, and he, you know, he, he was saying that some people they, they'd see scoring a goal as kind of as you know showing the people mm, who are mm. these ignorant people uh, that, that's 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 a response some people want, and other people obviously feel that walking off the pitch is, is what's necessary. And uh, as we're saying, I don't think it's it would have been unanimous, so it would have been very interesting to to see how they have come to how they have come to this this decision. Um, but Gareth Southgate, he has to be commended for tackling it head on. Yeah, he certainly led from the front. But it is, of course, a grim reality that there is this expectation of racism, especially in Bulgaria. Uh, extra anti-racism observers will be positioned uh, in the Vasilevsky Stadium after it was flagged as a risk for potential abuse. There will be at least three observers in strategic positions around the stadium supplied by the Football Against Racism in Europe group, which is more than any other match in the international break. And, and Henry, I know you've written a piece in the Times this week calling for the players to walk at the first instance. The camp has been reminded, as we've talked about, by the uh, UEFA protocol. Do we have any idea of the repercussions there would be should England walk off? Uh, I think that uh, UEFA will get huffy. They'll say this is this is not right. There'll be a There'll be the image of the referee and maybe one or two UEFA officials chasing Harry Kane and the players down the tunnel. And I think the whole weight of the nation will get behind the, uh, the, the England players and it will be an FA versus UEFA thing. UEFA have to tread very carefully because they don't have a great reputation uh, for, for tackling, confronting racism. Plus also the final of the, the, the competition that England are involved in at the moment, the semi-final and the final are at Wembley. So the FA have got a, a card to play there if, if UEFA tried to get um, uppity with England. I just think there's such an appetite now. I mean, you sort of talked about that piece I wrote the other day. I mean, I, to be honest, I came to the conclusion about sort of three, four years ago, having been writing sadly about racism in football for, for many years, including writing a book with John Barnes on it. And I've just come to the conclusion that actually the only way to deal with these people is to walk off and to actually to challenge the fans, the majority of fans who were, who were, who were great wherever you go, actually to challenge them who are around, who've got so racist standing next to them doing monkey chants. And if it's one person, maybe it's a, if it's a group, but actually take responsibility, the fans, for their own situation. Now, look, it's difficult because there's a threat of violence. It's their own. They maybe don't think, see there's anything wrong with it. But actually, they've got to do something. The fans themselves have got to look at themselves. I understand you've got to go back and it's to do with education and socioeconomic circumstances and, and issues like that. But also the national associations have got to do something. Because Montenegro, their FA, was an absolute disgrace. And what was interesting when, when it all happened with uh, Hudson Adoy, Danny Rose and Raheem Sterling, when they got racially abused uh, last season, um, Gareth Southgate was walking in there and we said to him, why don't you take the players off? And he looked really sort of troubled by the thought, maybe I should have done more for my, for my, for my players because he so cares about these players. You know, he, he, he came through the system at, at Crystal Palace, a very diverse team when he was playing there, Brighton, Brighton, individuals like that. He's very aware of these issues. And I think he's had a look a little bit within and thought, I've got to make a stand here. And I think I will absolutely back these, these, uh, these players to come off. But just on your last point that you were just talking about there, Natalie, about... Uh, the fact there are only three uh, UEFA spotters mm. listening in. I think it will be found by a sound engineer 
at uh, you know the BBC or Talk Sport or or on uh, on television, whoever's showing the game, because they're the ones who are listening to to the feed, who are focusing on the sound, mainly because they don't want anyone to swear, so they turn the volume down if there's particular swearing in certain areas. So I think that it'll be television probably that picks up on uh, any racist chants first, as also the players on the pitch, because, you know, they can clearly hear. Often the photographers who are closest to it, we go and ask them afterwards, you know, the photographers that we know, said, did you hear anything? He said, no, we were to- so focused on the, uh, on the game. So it'd be interesting to see who, who, who picks it up. But if a player hears it, I hope they go straight over to the referee, go straight over to Harry Kane and said, listen, this is unacceptable. We're walking off. You were talking about Gareth Southgate there. It was three years this week since he took charge of his first game as the England manager. It was a 2-0 win over Malta. The first goal was scored by Daniel Sturridge and Wayne Rooney was the captain. A lot, of course, has changed in that time, including, we can say, two major semi-finals. Henry, let me come to you. How would you rate England's rise under Southgate? Oh, very exciting. And it's still on the rise. I mean, you, you look at, you know, you mentioned the semi-finals. I think the, uh, you know, he's evolving all the time. The team's getting younger. You're seeing a player like Marcus Rashford, who did well at the, uh, the World Cup. He's now under pressure for his place from Jaden Sancho. You're seeing, you know, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, when he's fit, is putting pressure on Trent Alexander, who I think is barely out of his team. So if you look at, I look at the, the, the senior team when it's selected. I thought, oh, is that the under-21 team? And then you realise, no, this is the senior team. And then you look at the talent that's still in the under-21s. Hudson-Odoi is still there. Phil Foden is there. You know, there's, you know, about two, three years ago, well, actually probably 18 months ago, England was saying, where's the talent coming from? Look, there are issues. England still lack a sort of dynamic central midfielder. There are issues with concentration in defence. Do, do England have a, you know, a high-class understudy if anything happens to Harry Kane? But otherwise, in the majority of positions, England are, are well-stocked. Um, there are no cliques in this camp. There are no idiots. You know, one or two individuals, people say, well, why aren't they in the squad? Well, one or two of them is because maybe certain people within England don't necessarily like their attitude. So I think you've got a very, very um, united squad they're completely uh, believe in what Gareth Southgate wants to do. Uh, I think it's a better team now than it was uh, during the, the World Cup when they got to the semi-finals. I think Southgate's probably a, a bit better as well because he will have analysed his performance against Croatia. He didn't react to to their changes in the semi-final. Um, so I think look, I think things are very encouraging. The problem they've got is it's there's a fantastic Dutch team coming through. The French are obviously outstanding. That Belgian team, you know, they're, you know, their second 11 could probably get to the quarterfinals of the Euros. So, you know, England are up against some really outstanding opposition. But there's a confidence there. And the most important thing that Southgate's done, as everyone's been saying, is taking the fear out of playing for England. The shirt doesn't weigh so heavily anymore. They go out and express themselves. Henry, really appreciate you speaking to us. Thank you very My much. My pleasure. Bill, for you then, what's been the biggest change in the England we're now seeing under Gareth Southgate? Um, I think they've got their uh, attacking game together. It, it took a couple of years. I mean, the first two years, I don't think the level was was any better than under Hodgson. That includes the World Cup, where they where it was all tremendous fun. They got to the World to the semi final, but uh, they had a very lucky draw. Um, but I thought the big step forward was in the Nations League qualifiers, particularly the two games against Croatia, where where they were by far the better team in both games. Um, and and yeah, the style has developed. They're, they're, they're much like a, a top Premier League team now. I think they're, um, they press hard. It's very imaginative. 
going forward and they've got a um uh, they're happy to pick young inexperienced players yeah i mean he's lucky i think in that the standard of players has gone up a little bit but um you could say he deserves some credit in that sense because he he's been involved with the youth england youth team so he's helped nurture them a little on the international mm-hmm. stage um so it's looking uh, promising more promising than it has done for a while although thinking back to the nations league final uh, finals match against uh, holland in the semi final they were quite badly outplayed so that that's a warning that there's still a, a while to go before they reach the very top mm. uh, gregor as a, as a scotsman and no doubt a proud <laughs> scotsman does it great you that we talk so uh so, um, what can I say, adoringly about Gareth Southgate and what he's done for England? No, not at all. I mean, he's he's likeable. He's a he's a thinker. He's you know, it's, it's just amazing to think as well that you know the the circumstances in which he he came into the job. Sam Allardyce was the was the previous England manager, and how different things could have been, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's worked out brilliantly because, as Bill alluded to, all the, the England's success in in youth age groups. Um, there's been a sort of continuity to that process and the players have progressed. Some of them have worked with Gareth Southgate in the under-21s and into the first team and, and that is unquestionably going to be his kind of legacy is that he's introduced a lot, this, this kind of generation of bristling young talent. Um, and I also think Steve Holland has to take great credit because the evolutions that, that, that uh, Henry spoke about there about you know switching from three at the back to four at the back and, and sort of making England a, a modern modern attacking force you know um, Steve Holland is the guy on the training ground who sort of hones those uh, that, that style of play um, another thing I think he deserves real credit for is just opening up the the whole experience of being an England player you know do you remember before the World Cup there was the press were invited to sit down f- for over an hour with all the players and mm. that would never have happened in the past and it just sort of it just sort of threw off the shackles and the sort of the weight weight of playing for England and sort of opened the door to all the players for for the whole public and the whole country as well and that, I think that's part of the reason why there was such a good kind of feel good uh, feeling in, in, in the country in, in the summer and, and it was getting really worrying for a while that you were going to win it <laughs> <laughs> I knew it, I knew he was going to come back to something like that um, but much of the build up to England's game with the Czech Republic on Friday has focused on the Chelsea striker Tammy Abraham eight goals in eight games in the Premier League nine goals in 11 in all competitions this season England should be very excited about having him return to the international stage because he's, what, last played for England nearly two years ago. Now, Gregor, you've written a piece about him this week in The Times. It, it looks back at his childhood, his development in the game with uh, a wide range of youth coaches say, at Chelsea. But was he someone, that you, from what you've written about, was he someone that you saw was destined to make it on the big stage? It's funny, most of the people I spoke to would say yes, but the question was always that opportunity. That was the biggest question mark at Chelsea, which is understandable because there, there had been none really until until the season. So, you know, his co- one of his coaches, Eddie Vivash, said to me that he said his talent was always there. He, you know, dedicated professional, really competitive spirit, did all the extra work. You know, great professional, and and his and his family behind him as well. He did things like moved the whole family moved to to sorry to be near, near the Chelsea training ground when he was 16 and going full time uh they really pushed to for him to get out on loan when he was 18 to go to 
to Bristol City. He thought he was ready for for senior football. Um, and obviously, Bristol City and Aston Villa, he thrived. Swansea was interesting. I spoke to Paul Clement, and, and he said that he started really well. He scored four goals in his first eight games, got, the, got that England call-up, and then he had to wait until April before his next Premier League game. Clement was sacked. Uh, Carlos Cal- Carvajal came in. Um, and Swansea were really sort of on the slide, and that was a difficult, difficult time for him. But he's even he even referenced this week that that was probably the spell in his career he learned the most. And mm. Paul Clement was saying he had to learn to be a strong a, a man playing up front on his own, often against two established, kind of powerful centre halves in the Premier League, um, and sort of learning that it's, you're not going to have the ball all the time and be part of a team that sort of dominates possession. So. Um, been a lot of sort of formative form, those formative years have really kind of shaped him and I don't think he would be the player now uh, who's getting the opportunity at Chelsea if it wasn't for those those loan moves and mm. and and his dedication undoubtedly I think yeah he's mentioned hasn't he that that Swansea loan move made him into to a man basically yeah. it was yeah. a a real baptism of fire um should we be excited about Tammy Abraham from an England perspective Bill yeah I think so because he's got he's a He's got two vital ingredients that you want for a, a striker. He can finish really well. He's shown that <clears throat> with Aston Villa last season and um, with Chelsea this season. Um, and not any, he can finish in different ways, both feet and uh, in head head well. But also he can hold the ball up well. So he he's um, strong and clever and can bring other players into position. So he's not just a, a, f- a finisher, not just a you know knows where where to hang around in in the box to finish off so i think he's a he's a good all-round uh player and that uh, ability to hold the ball up is important with because both chelsea and england play with just one striker um so so, so we should be excited at the moment that the fact that england do play with only one striker and the fact that the number one striker is harry kane who's, who's so much the number one striker it's going to be hard for Abraham to get into the starting eleven unless Southgate changes his formation. But um, when Kane is injured, which unfortunately he has had a couple of spells out in recent years, um, Abraham is a, a, a good person to, to come in. Mm. Well, when it comes to the other options then for Gareth Southgate, we know, as Bill has just said there, Harry Kane is, is number one. He's always going to be picked first. But there isn't much else to choose from in some ways with Marcus Rashford perhaps not doing it for England uh, or even for Manchester United right now. Callum Wilson perhaps isn't on form right now. So do you think, based on form, Tammy Abraham should be second choice? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you wouldn't have thought you would have said that, you know, yeah. <laughs> even, a, even a month ago. Um, but he is, undoubtedly. He's, he's got... He's got the kind of goal scorer's instinct, I think, and that's what, again, people I spoke to, Lee Johnson said that, he's the Bristol City manager, he said the thing he sort of remembered most was whenever players were moving away from the goal, he was moving towards the goal. And he would often throw out his big sort of long lanky legs and get on the end of things that he never thought in a million years <laughs> he was going to touch. And he said, you know, that's you can tell that he's a product of his environment, but he's also got an instinct about about him as well. Um and I, I admitted a few weeks ago that I, I didn't think he was this good. Um, I think quite a lot of people would have been in that that same boat. He's, he was he was prolific in the championship, but that that season at Swansea was was very tough for him. And even in some games in the championship, I I would see and just look at his all round 
play and he's you know he's, he's part in sort of in 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 constructing attacks and holding the ball up and stuff like that. I thought there was stuff to work on, but he's been he's been magnificent this season and and he's definitely if Harry Kane was was to was not to play, he'd be the second second in choice definitely. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, Jamie Carragher has suggested that Trent Alexander-Arnold could eventually become Liverpool's answer to Kevin De Bruyne. The 21-year-old scored one goal and made 12 assists in 29 Premier League games last season, whilst he's already netted once and created two goals this term. Steven Gerrard was used as a right-back in the very early stages of his career, so could we see Alexander-Arnold follow in the former Liverpool and England skipper's footsteps, Gregor? I think he has... The capability, that's the first thing to say. Um, there's two strands to this. Is The first is, is he good enough to play midfield? And the answer is undoubtedly he is. I, I've said this already, I think he's the most sort of technically complete English footballer around just now. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about all these, the, all the wingers, you know, Hudson Adoy and Sancho and people like Tammy Abraham. There's no one who is technically as complete as Alexander Arnold. He, but sometimes when he gets, he sort of hits those raking cross field passes, it just kind of, I just swoon. It's just <laughs> absolutely, you know, natural, pure strike of the football. He's, he's, uh, all right, I'm gushing now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really no, yes. But so the first thing is, yes, he could play in centre midfield. The second thing is, would that make him more effective for Liverpool? And that's the million dollar question because the way Liverpool play, fullbacks are a huge part, him and Andy Robertson on either flank. And there's not really many people better at crossing a ball than him. And I'm not sure he would get in as many of those positions if he was playing in midfield for Liverpool. Liverpool's midfield is essentially the engine of the team. It's not actually the creative sort of spark of it. Mm-hmm. So unless that was to change, um, I think he should persist with, with playing at right back. He's been compared to, you know, Jamie Carragher was talking about Kevin De Bruyne. Um, and I was looking before, he, he played... An average of three and a half key passes a game, Trent Alexander Arnold. Kevin De Bruyne is just over four, and they're about the same in number of crosses per game as well. So he's he's almost been as effective as De Bruyne is now from fullback. Um, I don't know. In the future, he might he might turn it. To, I think he could be he could be 
as influential and as sort of good as Steven Gerrard for Liverpool. He's that good, yeah. It's interesting because he actually started in the academy as a midfielder at Liverpool and then has mm. been put into the right-back position now. So he has that versatility that he could, if needed, drop in or move up into the midfield positions. Yeah, to call... <laughs> Uh, kind of withdrawing his uh, the memory of his past. Yeah, yeah. you you do often wonder if some if it's worth say in pre season or whatever, just just moving the the team around, getting everybody to play in different positions, just to, mm. just to see if anybody would actually thrive in a different position. Because quite often you'll you'll stick in the same position for your whole career. Yeah, yeah, you know, might you might just be uh, you know a winger who would do well in centre midfield or whatever. Mm. Well, at the Milano did that, I think in. Yeah, just bef- in the build-up mm. to the to the Champions League final, okay. they were they were playing a, a sort of eleven v eleven, and uh, th- I think the the sort of other eleven were trying to replicate the opposition, and Lalana mm. played in a sort of bit more of a deep lying role in midfield, and apparently everyone was like, oh, what's, this could be something in this. Oh. So that was something that was spoken about at the start of the season. So I think it, it might happen occasionally. Mm. I would be very surprised if Jurgen Klopp doesn't. Hasn't got this in his mind, his mind, but he's got to find the right back as sort of as, good as productive <laughs> as as Alexander Arnold. And as we've said, those those fullbacks are so key for the way Liverpool play. There, there is a tradition of fullbacks doubling up as centre midfielders. Having said that, there's Bill Neville and Daley Blint, Manchester United. Um, Giovanni van Bronckhorst did it at Arsenal, and there's a couple of Bayern Munich players. Uh, Joshua Kimmich now Philip Lahm in the past so so they've shown it's been possible usually it's they've they've uh, gone from full back to defensive mm. centre midfield as opposed to attacking centre midfield um, although I can think of one example David Alaba also Bayern Munich who's, who's played you know attacking centre midfield for Austria um, but but yeah um if we're thinking of Alexander Arnold as a kind of number ten attacking midfielder, as Gregor said there, Liverpool's uh, system is four three three, and the three midfielders are very much withdrawn, so they they don't have a number ten as such. So um, whether he would he would be a perhaps a, a plan B, perhaps mm. if if it wasn't working, then change to four two three one, and he could be the player in the hole, perhaps. Um, but Klopp has Jurgen Klopp has definitely been stuck with this four-three-three very rigidly, and, and the creative stuff comes from the front three and the the two fullbacks. So he'd have to change his philosophy a bit to, mm. for Alexander Arnold to to change position. It's not just Liverpool either. Fullbacks now do affect the game as much as midfielders do. It's changed. You know, it's not like you've got Paul Scholes sitting in there spraying passes around. It's, that's not really the way. The game's played anymore. It's kind of, it's all about front foot dynamism, mm. and Trent Alexander-Arnold could do both, I think. But as I say, I think, you know, the way Kevin De Bruyne gets worked into positions, that kind of little half inside space just outside the penalty box to put in crosses for Manchester City. Liverpool don't really work attacks in that way. It's about getting Alexander-Arnold can do it from full back, but whether he would do it from from midfield to quite the same extent would be I'm, I'm not sure about that so um, I think leave him where he is just now I do though like the idea of uh, as you said before Bill about all the players should be tried out in different positions because we could have a goalkeeper being a striker <laughs> and, and all that sort of yeah. thing in fact I do remember a story from my team Brentford when uh, we had Wojciech Szczesny, uh playing for us on loan from Arsenal and for some reason in, in different training sessions he always wanted to play 
the striker because obviously they never get the chance to be a striker. They're always in goal, so it does happen all the time. (laughs) There's been a number of departures in the EFL and we thought we'd focus on Jack Ross, who's been sacked by Sunderland 18 months after he took over at the Stadium of Light. The Sunderland owner, Stuart Donald, took the decision to dismiss the former Scottish Manager of the Year with the club in sixth place in League One following a 2-0 defeat at Lincoln City on Saturday. Sunderland lost in both the EFL Trophy Final and the League One Playoff Final at Wembley last season and the former St Mirren manager has only lost 10 games out of the 76 he's taken charge of in the North East. So the question is, why have they made this decision? You look at, at the league table, mentioned already they're sick, they've only lost two games, Gregor. So people outside of Sunderland might be thinking, this is ridiculous. Yeah, um, but inside the stadium were late. I think discontent was sort of brewing in the stands. It has been for a while. There's too many draws. There was a kind of running joke about the one-all draws, the number of them. Um, and it just, you know, it wasn't it wasn't edgy, edgy or seat style of football really either. Um, it, it was a, it's a difficult task, and he deserves credit for arresting the decline in the first place. You know, this huge sort of institution was just in free fall, um, and he, it never looked like it was too big for him. That's that's he deserves credit for that as well. Um, and he's he's obviously pr- proven himself to be a really good manager at St Mirren. Um, I don't think he'll, I don't think he'll struggle to get back in back into work. Whether it'll be another team of that stature or not is unlikely. But um, certainly there'll be clubs in Scotland, and there was a lot of teams interested in him after his success at St Mirren. So I think um, I don't think it'll be the last we've seen of, of Jack Ross. Uh, it is interesting, isn't it? As you say, the the draws may have prove costly for him. I know Stuart Donald said he's taken this decision because they want promotion and this is what he sees as the best course of action to take Bill but as I say with only two defeats outsiders will say it's pretty harsh when you hear that and when you see the record that he has do you think it makes the idea of going into Sunderland more difficult for others to take on because they know that well the the owner's pretty ruthless. Yeah people will know there's only one uh, outcome I if you don't get promotion, you're out. You know, I mean, it's perhaps not perhaps not surprising that it's the, only the second time in their history they've been in the third tier for successive seasons. Um, sorry, the only the first time in their history they, they've been in the third tier for successive seasons. And um, and they're historically a big club. Uh, they've had the tenth highest average attendance uh, since the. Second World War and the same between the wars, so they go back. They're a really huge club, and the fans will will just think they're in a you know ridiculously false position. So any sign that it, they're not running away with the uh, League One, they'll they'll get agitated naturally. Um, it's the train is now approaching junction at platform. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. 
only from Rustolium.